Hey, Reach listeners, my name is Barrett Brooks, and I'm here to tell you about the next big thing we're creating for you, the first annual State of the Blogging World Report. We want to give you the inside scoop on what exactly it means to be a blogger, but we need your help. We're looking for people just like you to take a brief survey so that we can produce a beautiful, thoughtful report that tells your story. To make sure your voice is heard, head to convertkit.com slash survey to chime in today. You're listening to Reach, a podcast created for professional bloggers to help you expand your reach and maximize your bottom line. I'm your host, Val Geisler, fellow blogger and marketer at ConvertKit. We've all heard it over and over and over again that consistency is key to any success. But how do you actually do it? How do you show up time and time again, even when you don't want to? And does it really pay off in the long run? Today, we're talking to ConvertKit's founder and my friend, Nathan Berry. Nathan is a blogger, author, designer, and the CEO of our very own rapidly growing startup. In this conversation, Nathan shares why and how you can show up consistently, why blogging about your process can attract a whole new audience to your brand, and how he made $19,000 from under 800 subscribers in less than 48 hours. If you find yourself feeling inspired by today's interview and want to impact your own reach right away, get our free action guide from this episode at convertkit.com slash reach, or just click the link in your podcast player. Let's find out how Nathan Barry achieved his reach. Well, hello, Nathan. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> um, it's really good to have you as, you know, the founder of ConvertKit. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about ConvertKit being built by bloggers for bloggers, and you're the blogger that that started it all. So, um, so thanks for being here. Um, I obviously a lot of people who listen and have followed our our journey with ConvertKit know who you are. Um, but I have a feeling there might be some people listening who who don't really know who you are and your your story. So, can you take us back a few years before ConvertKit started and talk about um, your blog and the products that you sold and, and the books that you write and things like that? Yeah. So I was born in, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Not that far uh, back. <laughs> yeah. We're a, a middle amount back. Yeah. Um, okay. So I was, let's see, I guess the, the place to start would be, I was working for a software company maybe back in 2010, started 2009, left in 2011. Um, so I worked there two and a half years or so and just worked on, you know, front end design, um, worked on the user experience design team and worked my way up till, you know, I led a small team there just working on design. And then we got into designing iPhone and iPad applications, which I had a ton of fun with. Got to design an iPad application before the iPad came out. And so that was always, that was interesting, you know, like not having an iPad or any of that because Apple hadn't released it, we were able to, uh, you know, just look up the specs and start designing for this thing that we'd never, never tested. And so, I remember when the the day the iPad came out, since 
Boise, where our office was, didn't have an Apple store at the time. We got up super early that morning, flew to Portland, bought like 25 iPads, um, and then, (laughs) you know, started handing, like, testing our application that had only run in simulators before and, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, But then we sent those those, uh, iPads out to our customers and, and all of that, just... I had a great time building this this app and learning how to design and develop for the iPad. And so we did that a little bit within the company, but then I got obsessed with doing that in my free time. And so I started building these apps and um, I would do the design side. I knew some development. Um, what apps did you build? So I, I ended up shipping three of them. Um, let's see. I'm trying to remember the order on them. There was an app, the one that was successful well, there are two that were successful. Um, and I, I kind of worked on all three of these at the same time. One of them was a flashcards app because I think all beginner developers want to build a flashcards app because it sounds easy. Uh, and another was an app called commit, which is still decently popular today, um, which is for building habits and tracking habits. Um, and the, the last one, and this was, was the successful one, uh, was an app called one voice. And the idea was if you had, um, so you had nonverbal autism or you had a stroke and you lost the ability to speak or something like that, you would use this app on the iPad and it had a bunch of images on it, uh, or a bunch of tiles. Each tile had a word or a short phrase and then like a picture or an icon to go with it. And so you would press these, uh, these tiles and it would build a sentence and that had synthesized speech. So it would speak for you. Oh, cool. Um, so this replaced like a $7,000 ruggedized touchscreen PC that, you know, like these these kids with like nonverbal autism would be carrying around at school and all that. And so it replaced it with, you know, the iPad, which was really sleek and had great battery life and, you know, cost a tenth of, of, the, of the amount. Um, so that was the first successful app. Um, and that, that app did pretty well. I think I... By the time I eventually sold the app a few years later, it had done maybe 60, uh, somewhere between 60 and $80,000 in revenue. Uh, That's pretty awesome for an app that costs a couple of bucks. Well, so I actually took a different approach with pricing on this. Um, and I charged a sizable amount for it. I charged $200 for the app. Oh, uh, wow. And the reason was because the, these other devices were $7,000. Because they fell into like the medical tech space. And so it was, oh, what will insurance pay for it? $7,000. Okay, cool. That's the price. Um, and it was, they were just terrible products. And so I looked at that and said, okay, the iPad is about $500. And then, you know, if the app, because I didn't expect to sell very many copies. And I wanted to be able to put time into it to make the product really good. And so... Uh, I sold, I priced the app at $200, so it came out to about 10% of the cost of the competition. Um, and my idea there was that then I could sell, you know, even if I sold a couple of copies a week, I could still afford to put time into this and make it a really great product. Because this was a side gig. Yeah, it was a side gig. I was uh, working full-time as a designer. And because the last thing that I wanted to do was to sell it for like, $2 or $4 and then have all these people saying, Oh, can you add this? Can you add that? And to not have any time or money to improve the product. Like this product was crucial to people's lives. 
And so I needed to charge quite a bit for it so that I could invest heavily in it. So from that point, I started, you know, I had fun with all of these apps and then I started uh, doing a little freelance work on the side, working on apps. And when I quit my job in 2011, um, which incidentally, I quit two weeks before my first son was born, um, which... No big deal. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> that was uh, interesting timing. But I'd, I'd saved up all of the money from my uh, my iPad app sales. And so I saved up like $25,000 from the last year of app store sales and just, you know, had that as a buffer. And then I, so I went back to some working on the, the iPad, iPhone apps, and then also freelancing on uh, iOS design. What made you want to quit and go the freelance route? Because that's a really scary leap for a lot of people to leave a regular paycheck. And did you have people asking to work with you on a freelance basis and you knew that that was something sustainable for you? Or what was the that decision like? Yeah, I wanted to make that transition for a long time. Um, yeah. Out of college, I did a lot of freelancing. I did freelancing through college. And so uh, it was familiar to me. I'd made it work before. Um, and I just saw a lot of opportunities there. And I wanted to work for myself. I didn't want to go into an office anymore. I didn't want to... Uh, be tied down to a company. I actually, one of the biggest things I wanted to work remotely. And so I actually applied to, to work at the two biggest, um, or two most popular, uh, remote working startups at the time, which would be 37 signals and automatic. Um, mm. and I got interviews at both of them, but didn't get hired. Um, so ultimately I had to start my own company where you could work remotely, uh, cause no one else would have me. Um, but at the time, you know, I, I wanted that freedom. I wanted to travel. Um, so that first year after quitting my job, I think I visited like 12 or 13 countries. Um, and we did that even with, uh, you know, a newborn baby. Um, like he went on his first road trip when he was a month old. We took him to Hawaii when he was three months old. And by the time he was like a year old, he'd been all over Europe and he, yeah, I mean, they fly for free. So why not? Exactly. Um, <laughs> so I wanted that freedom. That was very, very important to me. Uh, and when you're freelancing, there's this role, like financial roller coaster that comes with it that I had experienced a lot before I'd gotten, you know, three or four years earlier before I got in a job. And that's where one month you were like, Oh, I'm on top of the world. I just, you know, I just collected $10,000 in customer, uh, invoices and all of that like i'm the best person ever at freelancing blah blah blah. and the next month like you're still doing just as much work but you're in between all those invoices somebody is late at paying and all of that and you're like oh no i'm gonna go broke um you know why did i ever think of this i should just go get a job i you know and it's like this financial roller coaster that goes up and down and the emotional roller coaster with it and so when i went back to freelancing i was pretty determined to not repeat that and so I saw having a product as being a way to like level out the valleys in that roller coaster where if I just made, I think when I quit my job, I was making about 2000 or 2,500 a month on the app store. And so I just saw, uh, that wasn't enough to live on. I needed a little over double that. Um, 
but I saw that as a way of, of, uh, even in my worst months as a freelancer, I would still make that, you know, $2,000, um, from products. Uh, and I'd be able to travel and, and do what I wanted. So that, uh, that's how I got, got into apps and got to that point. I was also obsessed with blogging all the way along. Um, uh, but I didn't know what to blog about. So I mostly just read other people's blogs. Um, some of those early ones were like, I was a big fan of Chris Gillibo. Um, you know, got in Tim Ferriss's blog. I'm trying to remember some of the other ones. Those were the big ones though. Um, and then I was reading this post, um, from trying to see, it was from Sasha grief. There's two different posts, one from Sasha grief and one from Jared Drysdale. And this was posted on, uh, Jason Cohen's blog. And Jason is the founder and now CTO of WP engine, the WordPress hosting company. Mm-hmm. And, and actually is now a ConvertKit customer, which is kind of awesome. Um, so he, these two blog posts came out and basically what happened is Sasha and Jared are two designers who didn't know each other at all. And they, um, they each wrote design related eBooks and published them on the same day, purely by chance. And both of these books made it to the homepage of Hacker News the tech news site run by Y Combinator on the same day on the same day. Okay. And they had radically different pricing strategies. Uh, Jared's book was sold for $39. Uh, Sasha's book was sold in two tiers, one for $3 and one for $6. So it was basically like, here's the ebook. If you want the ebook plus bonuses, um, you know, that's $6, but just the ebook is $3. Yeah, that's quite a pricing difference. Yeah. And so they, uh, Jason Cohen sees this and says, whoa, okay, what's the right pricing method? And so he invites them both onto his blog to uh, to debate this. And so they each write guest posts about how uh, one one's pricing method is better than the other's, blah, blah, blah. Because the fascinating thing is they came out to almost the exact same amount of revenue. In a 48-hour period, they, like, one of them did 6500 the other did $8,000, um, you know, with radically different pricing methods. And so my biggest takeaway was not which pricing method is best, but it was, wait a second, these guys have tiny audiences, at least relatively speaking. They each had mm-hmm. like 500, maybe 1,000 email subscribers. And so I saw that and went, wait, you can self-publish a book to a small audience and make six thousand dollars or eight thousand dollars in the launch that's amazing because i'd always heard people like um uh you know the guys at 37 signals they're like oh we made a quarter million dollars off of our self-published book yeah oh uh, guess what that number's over a million dollars now and chris gillibo and tim ferris were doing bigger numbers and had big email lists and even even back then yeah yeah absolutely and so that's not really relatable but here were two examples um, that were very relatable to me. You know, they're both designers, both small audiences, you know, um, both approachable like scope and the size of the product to put together and all that. And I'd wanted to write a book for a long time. I'd been working on it off and on, um, but I never thought I could make money from it. And so then when I saw that, those examples, I thought, okay, I'm doing this. The only problem was that, uh, I wasn't very good at showing up consistently. 
And so mm-hmm. I had a bunch of book ideas that were like an outline and then maybe like the first five pages and that was it. And then I'd lose motivation and then kind of scrap it. So right about the same time I came across an article for, from Chris Gillibo and that was basically the gist of the article was it's really easy to write a traditionally published book, a self-published book, you know, or like a couple of self-published guides, um, you know, a hundred blog posts, 50 guest posts, and he like just goes on, you know, a few long form pieces for some magazines, blah, 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 in a single year. It's pretty easy. Oh, he said that was pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah. If you just write a thousand words a day. Mm. And a thousand words actually sounded kind of intimidating, but I thought, okay, I don't have to do this for an entire year. I just need to do it until this book is finished. Cause I'm tired of being the person who says I'm going to write a book and then never actually does. And I kept enough of that to myself that like, you know, I guess other people weren't upset with me or something, but you know, I was tired of having that perception of myself. And so I did the first thing that, you know, you should do when you're trying to start a new habit and that's, you should design and program an iPhone app to help you keep track <laughs> of that habit. Okay. Um, pro, pro tip. Yeah, exactly. Spend time designing <laughs> an iPhone app. Um, so I made commit, which is the iPhone app where you can track your, your streak of a habit. Um, and, uh, and so I started this habit of writing a thousand words a day and I'd get a, you know, three days in a row, five days in a row. Oh, and I should say the book that I was writing was, uh, called the app design handbook, which, so it's going to teach my developer friends, everything I knew about designing iPhone applications. And, uh, and was this an idea that was like one of your many, or is it a brand new idea? It was a brand new idea. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because designing iPhone apps was what I spent all my time on. Uh, it's what I did for customers or, or uh, clients at the time. And, you know, all the blogs that I was reading the tech space were iOS related. So even though I, I want to stop for a second, because even though you had all these other outlines and maybe even some portions of other books written, you decided that the best way to go was to teach what you know, which is app design. And and none of the other outlines did that. So you just put, put all that aside, even though there was some work in it already and and started fresh. Yeah, and especially because the other ideas were around, um, I didn't have as much experience with them. They were around like some small business marketing or or some like um, how to some web design type type things, but more related to how to have a successful website, you know, for a small business, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I found myself increasingly less, increasingly less interested, decreasingly interested in. Uh, in those topics. And so at this point, you know, I had the motivation and the inspiration to work on this topic on the app design book. Um, and so I wanted to capitalize on that, but then have a system in place to continue working on it when I knew the motivation would disappear, um, as I always had before. And so the time, what was different this time is that I wasn't relying on that initial burst of motivation to carry me all the way through to the finish line. I was just relying on it enough to get me excited to get the outline and, and that, get all of that done and then have a system in place, in this case, writing a thousand words a day, uh, to carry me through to the finish. So it doesn't have to look like for, 
anyone who's listening who wants to write a book or has is going, yeah, that's me too. I have all these outlines and and you know half written books and but it doesn't have to look like the system is you know write this chapter today or um or uh, you know complete this portion of the outline and have you know certain days set on the calendar but it's as simple as write a thousand words a day and and then go in and do your editing and rearranging and chaptering and all that yeah so what i actually did was i wrote a rough outline and then I used the tool um, Scrivener, and I had the outline listed out kind of down the side because you have a bunch of like kind of nested documents, I guess, in Scrivener. And I just scanned down that, picked a topic that seems interested that or interesting that day, clicked into it, started writing. Mm. Um, and so I was all about getting that thousand words wherever it came from, basically. And I w- I would skip around, I'd jump around, and then. Um, leave more to the editing process. Um, and that way I could just work on what was most interesting and it made it a lot easier, but it wasn't like, I didn't write the books like front to back start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of people get tripped up is feeling like I have to, you know, let's start at the beginning and go all the way through to the end. But the outline really helps, especially if you have that goal of a thousand words a day. So a thousand words a day and you did that every day. Uh, and yeah, so I would get like three days in a row and then miss a day and six days and miss a day. And I got like 15 days and then I went on a five week trip to Italy and, and, uh, the UK. And so, you know, I did a little bit of writing, but that streak kept getting broken. Um, but then eventually I built it up and I had like 70 days in a row by the time I published the book. Um, and so that, uh, it worked, you know, yeah. I got the book published. I checked that off and, uh, I don't know. I felt like I no longer, I guess, had to be embarrassed about being the type of person who doesn't finish projects. Cause finally <laughs> I finished a project that was meaningful to me. So you published the book and you saw, you had Sasha and Jared's posts talking about pricing and did you pick one of their models or did you make your own? Yeah, I, I made my own and I actually went back later and wrote an article a guest post for Jason Cohen's blog saying, you know, Sasha and Jared are both wrong. Here's the, <laughs> <laughs> the ideal pricing method. Um, and really, you know, that's how I started the article. And then I went into it and said, actually, really, they're both right. We're going to combine their pricing methods to come up with the perfect thing. Um, and what I did was I said for, okay, first of all, $39, that's a good price. Um, so I think the mistake that Sasha made was that uh, he wasn't charging nearly enough, whereas Jared was charging a lot, and that was good. And the mistake that Jared made was that he only had one price. And so I thought, let's combine that. So $39 for the book, and then let's add in these extra resources like Sasha did. Um, but let's go higher. Let's go $79, and I think I did $169. Um, and so I launched the book with these three price tiers. And so basically taking the higher price from Jared and the price tiers from Sasha combining that. And, uh, um, it did, it did better than I could have ever expected. So I went from no audience to an email list of 798 people leading up to the book launch. Uh, this was from, and you were collecting them on nathanberry.com. Yep, exactly. I had a, a landing page for the book that was really simple. You don't just uh, like an image of the book, uh, a tagline about, you know, learn to design iOS apps and then 
like sign up to here when it's available. Um, and then I would write tutorials for iOS design, and uh, those would link to that. <clears throat> Excuse me, those would link to that landing page. Um, and then from there, let's see. So I launched with just shy of 800 people. This pricing method, uh, and I was trying to come somewhere close to what Sasha and Jared had done, um, which was you know six and eight thousand dollars in 48 hours. And I passed 12,500 in the first 24 hours and was so, so happy. Yeah. If I could whistle, I would. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Me too. I can't whistle either. Um, and uh, then by the end of 48 hours, it was over $19,000. And so then I went, whoa. Okay. Because this was supposed to be another side project to help, other side product to help supplement like my freelancing income. And at this point, I went, wait, if I can keep this going in, in any way, I don't need to do freelance design anymore at all. So I was pretty happy. That was that first product launch. All those emails were collected in MailChimp. Um, and uh, I was like, hey, there's something to this. Build an audience thing, you know, <laughs> and uh, build an audience, you know, sell them a product that they want, solve their needs, and uh, you can earn a great living from it. So that writing books thing really worked for you and and worked for your audience because you obviously had a very dedicated audience at you know just shy of 800 people at the time who wanted to hear from you wanted to hear what you were talking about and like you said you had that experience of app design so that's what they came to you to were you blogging through that whole time too while you were writing is that part of your 1000 words a day yeah i think i published 5 or 6 posts during during that time Um, I, I published some more, but five or six related to app design specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's where most of the email subscribers came from. So the, the book writing, you know, writing eBooks really landed for your audience. What made you say, you know what, I'm actually going to go back to software design, app design. Yeah. So it was actually a, a bit of a longer path than that. Um, you know, I had this this habit of writing a thousand words a day. I'd finally ship my book, and then I had this iPhone app called Commit that would pop up every day, really obnoxiously, and say, "Are you going to write a thousand words today?" <laughs> and you're like, "I already did that." Yeah, so I I published the book, and it you know the next day I'm like watching my sales roll in. I'm so happy, and Commit says, "Are you going to write a thousand words today?" And I was like, "No," because I finished the book. But I still click into the commit app and I look at it and it's like, you have 72 days in a row of writing a thousand words a day. It's like, well, I don't really want to lose that streak. So what can we do here? You know, like, what am I going to write about? I I finished that. I finished the book. I could write some blog posts to promote the book. But you know what would be cool is to write another book. And so then I thought, okay. There's two design-related things that I know. I know iPhone apps, and then I also know web applications. I've actually spent more time designing web applications than iPhone apps. So why don't I write a book on designing web applications? And so the very next day, I you know, wrote an outline for the next book um, and then started writing 1,000 words a day. It took me 90 days um, from start to finish to publish that book. I was a lot more experienced. I knew what to do on the marketing side at least somewhat, because, you know, I'd just done it. Um, my writing habit was well-developed. 
and so, you know, three months later, I launched a book called Designing Web Applications. I always go for very literal names. Um, little SEO pro tip. Whatever you call your product is what people are going to use in the anchor text of their link when they link to you. Um, mm-hmm. So if you call your product something that you want to rank for, um, it it's effective. <laughs> so if you Google designing <laughs> web applications, um, I don't know where exactly I'll fall, but it will be high up on the first page. Um, you know, or how to design web applications or any of those related terms. Um, so then... I'd grown my email list a bit from 800 to about 2,500, you know, publishing tutorials, um, sales from the first book, all of that, and uh, launched the book with some improved pricing. I um, I went with the same pricing method, but increased the prices. That was inspired by my friend Patrick McKenzie, who I talked to, and he said, hey, I, actually, he had posted a comment on Hacker News because he's very active there. And he said, like, this is the first like small product from, you know, kind of this, uh, bootstrapper individual product like community that I've seen with pricing that doesn't suck. Good job. Oh. And so then I emailed him and I was like, okay, what would you like? It doesn't suck. What would you do differently? He's like, great. Just raise the prices. Um, keep the same model, raise the prices. And, uh, so I went, I kept the base at 39, but then raised the others to 99 and 249. Did that feel intimidating to raise the prices? Did you, were you worried about people not buying? I think a lot of people feel like, oh, but if I raise the prices, I, there's an expectation of a certain price now and my audience won't be ready for that. Or there's a lot of fear around raising prices. You know, I didn't feel that. And that's because I had the price tiers. And so I knew mm-hmm. that if you couldn't afford the top one, you could get a, a cheaper one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had also experienced it from the other side of running a design team and having the company credit card. And knowing that there's no real difference between $39 and $250 when I was buying it for the company with the company yeah. credit card. And it's just, I, I just need to say, will this save members of my team X number of hours? If yes, it's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. So having that experience, I thought, okay, we'll have the, the inexpensive one for the freelancers, the expensive one for the design teams and um, go from there. I, I didn't expect it to work as well as it did. Um, cause like 60% of all the revenue came from the top package. Um, so when you feel like your ebook is, or your book in general, your product and of whether it's a course or anything is really geared toward, um, maybe the same kind of person, but in a different place. So you were talking to freelancers and also design teams and, and maybe, you know, someone else who runs an agency or something, um, the tiered pricing model is a way to address all th- all of those different types of of customers that you you potentially have on your email list. Yep, exactly. I like to think of it as um, on one end, you're pressing for people who value money more than time, right? So a freelancer who's just trying to get their business off the ground, money is a scarce resource, but they've got plenty of time. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end, you know, the business owner, they may have more money than they have time. And so the way that plays out is at the base level, you're, you're telling them how to do it and you're giving them all the information they need to take action at the top end. You're trying to do as much work for them as possible. And so that means, uh, templates, shortcuts, you know, case studies, whatever that is going to help them achieve that result faster. And then you can charge a bit of a premium for that. 
Cool. So going back to the, like the transition to software, I realized that I just spent, you know, at this point, nine months or more talking about how to build software. And because the, uh, the books had done so well, oh, to finish up that, that book launch story, um, the app or designing web applications sold $25,000 in the first day. So it was uh-huh. more than double the launch and it had crossed $50,000, um, by the end of the first month. And with so, an email list of like 2,500 people. Yeah. And that was growing pretty rapidly. Um, and I was very active promoting the book outside of the email list, you know, on places like Hacker News and anywhere else that people would listen to me. Um, and I, I would share the story all the way along. Um, so I had these blog posts that were um, things like, well, I'd share all my launch numbers right after the launch and say, whoa, you know, a couple of days after the launch, I would do a full write-up. And you can still find these on NathanBerry.com um, of everything you could want to know about the launch, where the sales came from, um, who bought which package, what the email list was before, exactly what emails I sent to my list. You know, I, I had this philosophy early on of just, I didn't call it this, but of teach everything you know, which is now one of the ConvertKit core values. Um, but it just shared everything. And that actually drove more sales because people, you know, wouldn't hear about the book at first. But then one of the later blog posts would get shared widely and so then if they're reading a book about the launch of a book, they might check out the book and then buy it. Um, but that wasn't really common then. Um, like, it's it's pretty common. You hear now about people doing, you know, revenue reports and in, in monthly income reports, things like that on their blogs. It's pretty popular to see. But then, I mean, just a couple of years ago, that was fairly unheard of. Was there someone or something that influenced you to do that, to be so um, just open with everything that you experienced? Yeah. So there were, and it went back to uh, Sasha Grief and Jared Drysdale from, you know, who had written those posts that had inspired me. And so I was pretty determined to pay that forward and share my numbers because reading them, you know, I knew, Oh, this is possible, Mm. you know, and that inspired me to, to get in gear and get it done. And so, um, I figured, you know, maybe this is going to invite some more competition or make my life difficult in some way. Um, but if it inspires just a couple people to go and do the same, then it's worth it. And so not to mention the fact that then you're showing them that you're taking their models and making it your own and being able to talk to them in a way through your blog and through your marketing um, without ever really, you, you didn't know them personally. You were just reading about them on this blog. Yep, exactly. Cool. And and now they're both good friends. Um, but hmm. uh, yeah, I, I just, I felt like I had an obligation to pay it forward because I'd, I'd uh, learned so much from it. So from there, I have an email list of about four or 5,000 people. I have... Oh, probably 70,000 in product revenue that I've done in the last three months since launching, you know, or it's been four months since launching my first book. It's now, what is this? January, 2013. Um, and I'm like, okay, there's something to this having an audience or something to, um, uh, 
selling products, you know, I can make a good living from this. Because my last design job was at $60,000 a year. And so 70000 in three months, I was pretty happy. Yeah, I think anyone would be. <laughs> um, but I was learning all of these best practices related to email. And I was just fascinated by it. Like trying to learn absolutely everything I could, how to set up autoresponders, um, you know, how to do content upgrades. What sh- If someone downloads your sample chapter on your book sales page, what should you send out afterwards? Um, how should you track your customers? And I was learning all of this and it was just hard. And it was intimidating. And I, I looked at this and going, I'm a software guy. Like I, I know design and I know, you know, coding and, and this shouldn't be so difficult. And I felt like every time I learned a best practice, I was fighting with MailChimp to implement it. Um, so I'm feeling all of this, like (laughs) email marketing is amazing. This is hard, you know, like simultaneously. And then at the same time, entirely separately, I'm thinking, I want to get back into software because I'm telling people how to design software, but I haven't really designed any software in like six months or nine months that I've been working on this book and all that other than like a little bit of freelance stuff. And so I was feeling like I was getting a bit rusty. I wanted to work on my own projects. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go for the next challenge in, uh, in building an online business and start a SaaS app because I wanted that recurring revenue and I wanted to start a software product. And so I actually decided since this is going well, I'm going to do it publicly. Like, you know, same idea, teach everything, you know? And so I I said, okay, I don't know what I'm going to build, but I'm going to, uh, start on January 1st with $5,000 to invest in this product. Cause I didn't want to waste a ton of money. I, wanted to make sure that I validated the idea and got customers to pay for it. Um, and the goal is to turn the SaaS app into $5,000 a month in revenue within six months. And so I called it the web app challenge, um, wrote a blog post and then started trying to come up with an idea. And I spent about a week, um, interviewing people, uh, trying to pick like a market to go after. You know, I talked to like lawyer friends, accountant friends, like a bunch of different industries to try to find some pain to solve. Um, before I finally went, and this was with some help of uh, my friend Amy Hoy, I went, wait a second. This email thing is really irritating me. I'm having a really hard time <laughs> here. Why don't I uh, solve this email problem? And the core problems were that, you know, once I wrote them down, I couldn't tag my customers. You know, I was having to create multiple lists in MailChimp. Um, so I couldn't talk to people differently based on who was a customer and who wasn't. I was pitching people on products they'd already purchased because I didn't have a good way to do that. When I set it up with multiple lists, I was um, uh, getting charged for the same person multiple times because someone would be on the newsletter list and the customer list. And I was yeah. getting double charged. Uh, I knew that these follow-up sequences were really effective, but I wouldn't set them up because they were such a freaking pain. And so I was like, wait, I'm not doing things that will make me good amounts of money that I know for a fact will make me good amounts of money just because it's a bunch of work. Um, and the list kind of went on and on and it was all the stuff. And I thought, okay, MailChimp serves a really broad audience. What if I built an email tool for people like me, people trying to build a blog and, and sell products to them? 
Um, and so that's, that's where ConvertKit started. Um, and it was kind of a long road and that was three and a half years ago. So a lot of people say when you're, whether it's starting a blog or creating a product or a software, um, that you do it exactly what you did of interviewing other people, finding out other people's pain points. Um, but there is that element of addressing your own pain points too. Like, um, when Sarah Von Bargen was on, she said yes and yes was an answer to a blog that she wanted to read, but it didn't exist. Um, and and at the same time, she knew other people wanted to read it because she had seen comments in other places. And, you know, that. so there's a little bit of like, this is my problem, but I need to validate that it's other people's problems too. Um, did you have that experience or were you like, you know what, I, I have the extra cash flow, I have the time, I just want to solve my own problem and maybe it'll be someone else's problem too or did you know that it was other people's problem um because i had started with i'm going to solve someone else's problem um you know by interviewing other people and and trying to find that pain to solve when i pivoted a little bit and said actually i'm going to solve my own problem i still kept that mindset of it can't just be my problem it's got to be other people's and so then i just went about interviewing people um, and having kind of those pre-sales calls with uh, um, people who had similar problems to me. And so I, I use the same validation method uh, with, you know, with ConvertKit, what became ConvertKit, um, you know, as I did with when I was trying to just find an idea. And so that resulted in, you know, me calling people uh, uh, who had audiences, sold products, asking them what their pains were related to email um, and just kind of going down the list and planning out what this product should be, what it needed to solve. Um, and then, So you set out your app design challenge when you started building ConvertKit. Um, was it something like the, the thousand words a day project that you did a set amount of work every day and, and saw results in a set period of time or, um, I guess, kind of, how long was it between starting the project and deciding on your your final what the software would be to when you started seeing revenue? Because you said the goal of what to make five thousand dollars back. Yeah, five thousand dollars a month within six months mm-hmm. was the goal. Didn't happen, um, <laughs> which is crazy to think about now. But um, now, when we're we we just hit four million dollars and. Annual revenue? Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, what, two days ago? Yeah. Um, so, oh, man. Yeah, it was an interesting time. Um, I just, I spent most of my time on the product and writing blog posts about it. So I wrote about how I found the idea, how I um, chose the name, just everything. I published probably a blog post every week, sometimes two a week. Um, just about everything I was doing. So things moved quickly. Um, you know, how I hired a developer, um, how it just went from there of, uh, then what the, you know, I posted wireframes of what the product was going to be, um, did pre-sales, um, got a decent number of pre-sales. I think we made like $1,500 worth of pre-sales, but granted that's one time that's, or, or, you know, that was paying for X number of months up front. And so that wasn't you know, close to the monthly level. Um, but by the end of six months, I think we were just shy of, or right around $2,000 a month. So it didn't hit the goal, 
But at the same time, going from zero to 2000 a month in six months, uh, it's pretty good. It's all good. Yeah. The other thing that I learned is that everyone else counts their timeline based on, um, the day they launch through to today. And I realized that I consider ConvertKit's timeline from the day I started thinking about starting a SaaS app or Uh like the day I started working on a SaaS app, um, till today. Whereas, you know, so we've done this in three and a half years. Other people would start that clock ticking a lot later. Uh, Got it. But in your mind, it's three and a half years because that's when you first started thinking about it and dedicating time to it. Yeah. And I was thinking about it before, but really the dedicating time to it um, was the important thing. So yeah, ConvertKit in one form or another was born on January 1st, 2013. And for anyone who wants to read some of those blog posts and, and more of the details of building ConvertKit over time. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes on the action sheet. So that, that series of blog posts, um, cause there's a ton of detail. Like you said, you shared everything that you were doing. Um, and you can read through the entire story from vi- the very beginning to, to now, because you still write on your blog now. Um, even though you run a so- software company, you still have this audience that you've cultivated over the past sub- several years between your books and, um, you wrote a third book and in that same time frame of building ConvertKit. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what it's like to kind of balance between running this software company now and having the team that that we love and and also staying um, staying connected with the audience that you've built in the, the app design software design world over at NathanBerry.com? Yeah, so the first approach that I always had, and this was even in the naming of the site was that I knew that as my interests changed, I wanted the site to be able to stick with me. And so instead of naming the site, uh, iPhone app design tips.com or something like that, I named it nathanberry.com because I was like, look, my interests are going to change. And cause actually today I have almost no interest in designing iPhone applications like that interest has gone away. Um, but I still wanted to be able to have the site and I wanted to be able to have whoever in the audience still cared about what I was writing about to just be able to seamlessly follow me. Um, so during that time, like you said, I wrote another book. I actually made some other courses, you know, as ConvertKit, you know, went from like this initial success into, you know, maybe the dark years as it uh, just kind of floundered for a couple of years. Um, and, and that was mainly because I didn't focus on it full time. Um, so I've always had a hard time finding that balance between running a software company and running this blog audience driven business. And I feel like that's something that I've always done kind of poorly. And so it wasn't until October, 2014 that I decided that I still wanted to do ConvertKit. And if you want to read about that, we'll link to that post. Um, and then I wanted to double down on ConvertKit because now two years in ConvertKit was at $1,300 a month in revenue. So instead of slowly climbing, it had slowly declined. Um, and so instead of trying to juggle and balance these two businesses, I decided to effectively shut down the book and the blog business and just focus on ConvertKit. So there's a bunch of time in there that I didn't write a blog post. I just focused on building ConvertKit. Um, and then as we made some some progress, I would come back and every few months I would write you know, a blog post on, on my blog, but it was usually about 
the progress we'd made in ConvertKit since that time. Um, and so now, you know, the blog is not really a focus for me, except in a way that it, it helps build the ConvertKit brand and get that story out. Um, and however I can play out, you know, that ConvertKit motto of teach everything, you know, so recent blog posts are about, um, you know, how we got to profitability, how, uh, how we started growing quickly. You know, I'm writing a post on the direct sales techniques that we used, um, that kind of thing. And it's really, it's really not a separate strategy or separate blog, uh, you know, business or any of that. Now it's just, as I learned something in the ConvertKit business, or as we as a team learned something, just sharing that. And it's, and it's all still relevant to the audience that you had before because they are growing apps or web pro- web apps um, and want to learn, you know, kind of follow in your footsteps and learn from you as you go. Yep, absolutely. So that's, that's the goal. Um, my blog strategy right now comes down to teach everything you know. So whatever I'm working on um, will end up on the blog. Like there's going to be a post sometime soon on, you know, buying a thousand t-shirts to send out to your customers and how to run that whole process and, you know, the results that it had and all of that, you know, cause that's what I'm working on today. And, and there's nothing a SaaS company loves more than a good t-shirt. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and now everyone listening is going to ask for a t-shirt, Nathan. <laughs> it's going to happen. But uh, luckily I've put, a, or I'm putting a good system in place for that so that uh, we can actually make it happen, which I'm excited okay, about. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, you know, earlier you said that you had always had trouble showing up consistently and that the writing a thousand words a day definitely helped with that. But even going through that process, there were days missed and, and all of that. And you've written on your blog about what it was like to miss days in that process. Um how do you show up consistently now? Because it definitely takes consistency to to grow the business to the point that you have. Yeah, well, I mean, now I have 20 wonderful people who make sure that I show up consistently. Because um, <laughs> we, we have this great team that's, you know, uh, looking to me for what we're working on, where we're going, and, and all of that. Um, how do you do that for yourself? How do you self-manage showing up consistently? Like we, when we got on the call, you said you woke up and you were super excited about um, like getting back to work after the weekend. And so um, what is it in you now that's different than when you had more trouble showing up consistently just as an individual without the team considered? Well, I think the writing a thousand words a day was really a turning point in my life. Um, my friend Sean McCabe summarizes that as like, if you want to make anything successful, if you want to, you know, make anything work, step one is to show up every day for two years. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people are like, I'm going to start this blog. And so then they, they write a couple of posts and they're always relying on that. The momentum from the excitement of, around the idea. And that you just have to know that that's not going to get you anywhere what's going to get you somewhere is the habit of showing up consistently. And so I would say, um, like Sean's saying, show up every day and it doesn't even matter. You could show up to write 50 words if you're trying to write a blog or, 
or to do, you know, 20 minutes of work on your product or something like that. And if it continues on past that point, great. But what you can't do is, uh, show up one day, have all this energy, write 2000 words, you know, or do all this design work. And then the next day be like, yeah, I don't really feel like it, but I did a lot yesterday, so I don't have to do anything today because working those spurts is just not going to get it done. And so I think, I think the consistent work is really, really important. And it, I think it fundamentally changed who I am, um, and my ability to ship products. Um, now I eventually broke that habit that streak of writing a thousand words a day. And I, since I moved on to other things, it's not as important to me. Um, but I got to over 600 days in a row. And so I would say, uh, <laughs> if you want to learn to ship things consistently, um, do that. It'll fundamentally change who you are and your abilities to work. And, um, then you can roll it into the next thing. Even if the next thing isn't writing, if the, the next thing is, uh, running a team and figuring out how to scale a company. And I think that's true for anything that you're doing, whether it's writing or um, creating a product or, you know, it's like we go back to when you learned how to ride a bike, you would show up, you would get excited about riding your bike every single day just so you could practice and learn and keep doing it. And now you don't have to ride a bike every day in order to know you can ride a bike. So um, same thing for blogging when you're when you're first sitting down writing consistently um, and consistently can look like different things. It could be daily. It could be, you know, making sure your email goes out to your list every single week. Um, your your consistency can look different, but um, just making sure that it's there so that later on, like now you can sit down and write a blog post. No problem. Um, basically anytime you feel like it because you have that muscle built up of writing a thousand words every day. Yeah, absolutely. And now you do start to lose it somewhat. Um, and like, I have a, a bit harder of a time, you know, than when I just now, than when I just come off a streak of, of a ton of writing, but actually I'm kind of back in the writing groove right now. I've published a bunch of posts recently and, and written a good amount. And so, yeah, it, the more you work on it, the easier it gets. And uh, it really just comes down to the habit of showing up. It also seems like now you have a lot of fun writing. Um, your posts are are funny and, and lighthearted and, and really relatable. And so it's always fascinating to like dig back in people's archives of their blog posts and see where they've come from and um, where they are now. Because over time, that consistency adds up to just being more relatable and, and more human and, um, and, and integrating more of your personality into your writing, which I know you pretty well. So I, I can feel you in your blog posts, but I think that maybe some of your other readers can do that too. Yeah, that's the idea. I, uh, one of my favorite quotes from Seth Godin is that, um, or, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but it, it's basically around, writer's block and how writer's block doesn't really exist because, um, you should just write like you talk and no one ever has talker's block. And so, <laughs> you know, that's the approach I've always taken. I just write like, you know, I'm trying to teach you individually something, you know, a specific person. And I just write like I talk, try to keep it informal and it, it's more fun. It's a lot easier and, uh, it's so much faster too. <laughs> Well, it's clearly worked. You've amassed a, a really incredible reach over the years between your site and now through the software. And, um, and you know, it's, 
it's amazing to watch from an outside perspective for anyone who has been following you all along um, or even just to see now and, and hear the story. It's it's inspiring. And, you know, the thing I'm taking away is that consistency piece of um, putting pen to paper every day or fingers to keyboard. Um, and whether it's something I publish immediately or if I'm writing over time to build up a book or or something. But, you know, if my goal as a blogger is to to be blogging and writing, to write every single day. And we talk about it a lot in the team. And I know earlier in the year, we kind of had like a, a few people took that on as a New Year's resolution to write a thousand words every day. And I'm excited to to bring that back to my own daily practice. So thanks for sharing your story today, Nathan. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. That was Nathan Berry, founder of ConvertKit. You can find out more about Nathan, his books, and his blog at nathanberry.com. Grab our free action guide from this episode to help you impact your own reach today. Head to convertkit.com slash reach or simply click the link provided right in your podcast player. It's time to expand your reach. We're so glad you started here. Thanks for listening.